Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. I'm Chelsea, and I still love true crime. And I'm David, and I still love horror movies. And welcome to Behind the Screams. This episode was originally created for our Patreon listeners as an exclusive, but since the show is on hiatus, we thought it'd be a great way to give something new to most of you. We may have references to news events that are now far in the past, and also the style of these former Patreon episodes is a little different than our regular episodes, but we hope you enjoy the show. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And welcome to this month's uh, Based on a True Crime Patreon exclusive bonus episode. This week, thanks to your votes, we are doing The Entity. But uh, don't worry, Eaten Alive fans, we're actually going to be doing that one for our second episode in March. <laughs> we are, yep. Pretty excited since that was uh, Toby Hooper's second movie. Yes, and that was David's first choice, but I didn't let him vote in the poll. That'd be cheating. <laughs> yeah. And it was a close vote the whole way, so hopefully you know, you guys are excited for this episode and you're excited for us to cover Eaten Alive and the story of serial killer Joe Ball, who fed his victims to alligators. I'm a little surprised that didn't win the poll, actually. Uh, I think I didn't sell it really well. Yeah, I guess people prefer ghosts, although in this case... Um, these are not my my personal favorite type of ghosts, I guess. I love ghost movies. I was just talking about this in the cult Facebook group. You know, they're my favorite subgenre of the horror genre. But I gotta say, I was not a fan of the ghosts in The Entity. Shall we get started in talking about the real story, David? Do you have anything to add? Thank you to our new supporters. We had a, a couple new ones this month. You should be getting your uh, rewards in the mail very shortly if you are listening to this on the 1st. Otherwise, maybe you've already gotten them. Yeah, and thanks to everyone who took pictures and uh, shared that and tagged us on social media. That was really rad. We um, we encourage you to continue to do that as uh, we get new Patreon um, uh, supporters. So yeah, that's a ton of fun. But yeah, like Chelsea said, we are going to dive right in. So just a warning for this episode, it includes many references to rape. It is a story about ghosts who violently sexually assault a woman. So if this is not your thing, I absolutely understand. And uh, hopefully we'll make it up to you in our, our other regular episodes this month. In the summer of 1974, Dr. Barry Taff, a now-renowned parapsychologist, was working as a research associate in UCLA's parapsychology laboratory. Yeah, I said laboratory. I love it. <laughs> he and an associate, 
Carrie Gaynor were overheard discussing the paranormal in a local bookstore by a woman in her mid-30s, and she approached them with a story about her house being haunted. She didn't give them any details, but invited them to visit the home for themselves. It was a small bungalow located at 11547 Braddock Drive in Culver City. The woman was Doris Bither, and it wasn't until after Taff and Gaynor arrived at the house that they got the full story from Doris about the nature of these paranormal occurrences. Since moving into the house on almost a nightly basis, Doris was being violently attacked and raped by three nameless, shapeless entities. Shortly after moving into the home in Culver City, a Hispanic woman approached Doris at the house and told her that it was an evil dwelling, silently walking away when Doris asked her to elaborate. Not long after, the attacks began. There were three entities that would come to Doris at night. Two she described as small creatures that would hold her down, while the third was larger, and this was the entity that raped her. Doris was not the only one to see or experience attacks in the house. She was a single mother to four children, a daughter who was six years old, and three sons who were 10, 13, and 16. The children claimed to have seen their mother thrown around the room by an invisible force. Her middle son, Brian, was even thrown himself by the entity when he tried to stop it from attacking his mother. They also reported being slapped by an invisible hand and bumping into an unseen figure while walking around the hallway at night. The entities also weren't always totally invisible. Sometimes they appeared as a human-shaped fog, and one appeared so frequently that the children dubbed it Mr. Who's It. I don't remember that character from A Wrinkle in Time. (laughs) No? Yeah. Uh, So in 2009, Brian described the experience of seeing his mother attacked, saying, It was like if a man was standing in front of my mother and would start to beat her. Imagine a woman being beaten. You could see her being picked up and thrown around, sounds, slaps, but there was no one there to actually do it. We all felt it too. Pulling, biting, and scratching. We were all attacked. And that's terrifying. Yes. I'm sorry for the lighthearted wrinkle in time joke. It's just, I couldn't, the opportunity, Mr. Who's It? Yep. No, I couldn't help myself. That's all good. It's all good. So Taff and Gaynor were skeptical at first, but Doris's story was corroborated not only by her children, but by neighbors who saw apparitions through the windows of the home. Perhaps the most convincing evidence, however, were the bruise marks on Doris's inner thighs and all over her body. Taff and Gaynor decided that the case warranted further investigation. They returned to the house with a full team of investigators and professional photographers equipped with high-speed cameras. Taff, Gaynor, and about 30 other members of their team gathered with Doris in her small cramped bedroom. With cameras rolling, they had Doris summon the entities. Doris began cursing and taunting them, and suddenly orbs of light began to manifest around the room. A greenish mist started to form in the corner, and as the children described, it grew into the shape of a torso. Although a face never formed, according to witnesses, the musculature was distinctly masculine. Despite having multiple cameras and photographers taking pictures, none of the green mist or figure developed. However, multiple pictures of the light orbs do exist. In the most famous one, a streak of light forms a perfect arc over Doris sitting on the bed, seemingly defying the laws of physics. Taff and Gaynor continued their investigation for the next two and a half months. Over time, the activity of the entities seemingly decreased, but they did notice some interesting trends, including activity becoming more intense when Brian played Black Sabbath music, and that the entities only manifested when Doris was drunk. 
Brian also said in a later interview that the presence of the investigators made the activity worse, but only after they left, saying, quote, When the team would show up, I hated it, because I knew as soon as they left, they would become so angry that the house would come alive. Eventually, Doris moved out of the house in Culver City, and after she left, no paranormal activity was ever reported in the house. But the haunting did not stop there. The entities followed Doris and her family, first to Carson, California, then San Bernardino, then to Texas, then back to California. She even claimed at one point to have been impregnated by the entity, but medical exams indicated that it was either an ectopic or hysterical pregnancy. Which, this is what I found in the references. Those are two very, very different things. An ectopic pregnancy is when the fertilized egg winds up in the fallopian tube instead of in the uterus, and it's actually incredibly dangerous. And then hysterical pregnancy is when your hormones imitate pregnancy while you're not actually pregnant. But I really don't know which she was. It was different in different references, so I don't know. Well, Doris Bither passed away in 1999 due to respiratory failure. She was just 58 years old. According to her sons, she was still experiencing these phenomena until the day she died. So there are a number of theories which have been floated to explain or at least shed light on the paranormal occurrences surrounding Doris Bither. Uh, Perhaps the most obvious purely scientific reason is that the entities were entirely a product of her subconscious, leading to a kind of shared psychosis with her family. In particular, this theory goes that the three entities are actually a manifestation of her three sons. So the smaller two are her two younger sons, the 10-year-old and the 13-year-old. And then the largest one is her 16-year-old. Her oldest son, in particular, was resentful towards their mother for her, um, let's say, questionable lifestyle choices, which we'll get into in a little bit. And then, you know, in turn, she would come to resent him for trying to control her. And thus, this strained relationship manifested in an entity which was also trying to control her through physically attacking and raping her. This theory, as well as most of the paranormal theories, have their basis in Doris's troubled upbringing and kind of just troubled life in general. According to her son, Brian, she was disowned by her family as a teenager after a major altercation following years of abuse. And around that time, she also began to dabble in the occult, if you could call this the occult. So it was uh, holding seances and playing with Ouija boards, in which case I am probably also considered a member of the occult, or at least I would have been in my youth. (laughs) Uh, She had her first son when she was just 17, and each of her four children was fathered by a different man. Um, Kind of correlating to this, she went through a number of Uh, really abusive relationships with men. She turned to alcohol to cope. And according to Taff, this led to her, at least in his experience, uh, being really belligerent and verbally abusive in his visits to her home. He said that his experiences with her were kind of atypical in that he felt like he couldn't really question her mental health history because she seemed like, you know, she would just pull away if he really tried to do any of that. He couldn't even ask her, he said, her age in his kind of two months of researching this case. So getting onto the paranormal explanations for the phenomenon. uh, So this theory goes that the negative energy in the house either attracted or created a poltergeist. Uh, So poltergeists differ from ghosts or spirits because they can actually be generated by psychic energy. 
so they're not you know the soul of a dead person or whatever you want to call it they're actually generated by people by this psychic negative energy and as a result they are connected to a particular human host which could explain why when she left the house in Culver City this malevolent force actually followed her and this is the favorite theory of Dr. Taff Uh, when he looked back on kind of the entirety of his investigation. A second explanation is that actually Doris and her children, because of their, um, you know, biology or whatever, um, may have all been psychic and they were just being haunted by malevolent spirits. And this scenario would explain why the paranormal activity only occurred when she was under the influence of alcohol, because this would have lowered her inhibitions. But the truth is that we may never know why Doris Bither was a victim of these occurrences. But in any case, her haunting remains one of the most well-documented and scientifically researched cases of paranormal activity ever. It's attracted some press, probably not as much as something like, you know, the Enfield haunting, the the case that they cover in The Conjuring 2, but it, it is the source material for the entity, which we're going to be discussing shortly. I guess my question for you, David, is do you think it's real or not? Do you think it's a real a real haunting or not? Well the challenge here is that I don't believe in hauntings or ghosts. But do you want to believe? (laughs) Of course, I would love for ghosts to be real, but I don't believe that they are. Um, So in this case, you know, it's a real woman that was actually suffering. Her family was suffering. I don't want to just like completely be thoughtless about this. But as far as was it a a ghost or a, a poltergeist? I don't think so. I guess the question is, was it a ghost or was it something psychological with her? So you would lean towards this psychological. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know everything about the world, but that would be really my only option here would to be that it was um, it was psychological. This seems like it was an extremely traumatic event. I think traumatic events, they can still be traumatic. Right. It doesn't discount the fact yeah. that I'm saying it wasn't ghosts. Yeah. That it, this, it clearly had a really negative impact on Doris and her family. And, and that sucks. I tend to agree. I think it's especially hard because when you think about a crime like rape, the, the physical portion of it is a part of it, but the psychological portion is also. And to, to truly believe that you've been to truly believe that you've been violated in that way by an entity, you know, to, to call it that. I think even if, say, it is psychological and physically you haven't been, that doesn't mean it's not something that's very hard to process. And yeah. I I tend to agree with you. You know, I'm, I'm also in the boat of I want to believe, but I have not quite been convinced yet. This case, I think that you know, reading about it and reading about the experience of the investigators... Although there were 30 people there, there are three that have actually been named. And then there are some people who have claimed to have been a part of it. And uh, Dr. Barry Taff was like, no, you were not there. You were a poser and a loser. <laughs> and you are the worst. Yeah. But, you know, they've they've said they you know saw smoke man torso monster. And I think there are four pictures that came out of the many pictures that they took with those kind of light effects and none of the the smoke monsters. I'm such a skeptic. <laughs> I'm such a skeptic that also wants to believe. I think the field of parapsychology is fascinating, though. Yes. And what what I love about it is that he's written about it extensively on his website. Actually, while I'm on this, I might as well just talk about my sources. So Barry Taft's website, barrytaft.net. Uh, the story is The Real Entity Case, where he talks about it. And he actually writes about it with Xavier Ortega. Um, and he's actually a writer on ghosttheory.com, which is my other 
big source. His story is uh, The Entity Haunting, the true story of Doris Bither. And he's also working on a book about it where he interviews Doris's son, Brian. So all of the quotes from him are from Xavier. What they do, it has nothing to do with religion. And this is the big thing with the poltergeist is that they're saying it's a measurable scientific phenomenon. Um, One thing they talk about is that it happens more likely when a person is epileptic and when they're in some kind of like paramagnetic environment it's a lot of sciencey terms that you know as a scientist I I know what paramagnetic is but you know maybe don't understand the connection to poltergeists but apparently this person does um, but his big thing is that it, it is completely disconnected from anything religious or spiritual it is entirely scientific and I think that's a big thing with the poltergeist because it's not the spirit of a person who has passed on from this life it is an actual manifestation of someone's psychic energy so it's it's interesting it's fascinating it is quite the the rabbit hole to go down I still don't know how much I buy it I think it's easier at least for me to believe that it is all within a person's head rather than an external manifestation of what's in a person's head, if that makes sense. But it's it's still very interesting. And man, that picture of her with the light arc is actually, um, it's something else. We should post the picture with uh, with this episode because I, th- I think our listeners might be interested. So you're saying it's a class two repeating va- vapor. No, I'm saying it's not a class <laughs> two repeating vapor. Okay. All right. Nice try though, Ghostbuster. Yeah, class two repeating vapors are manifestations focused in this time and space. Class two ghosts and up can physically manifest things in this world. Some forms are vague, inconsistent, or incomplete, although proton pack. Oh, sorry. Anyway. The whole point is that it's not a ghost, David. Go with the program. (laughs) I love it. Well, on that note, shall we uh, move into our movie discussion? Sit tight. We'll be right back with a discussion of the film The Entity based on Doris Bither's experiences with the paranormal. Technically, it's based on a fictionalized novel of her experiences, which is what uh, Dr. Barry Taff likes to reply to people on the comments of his blog talking about. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Yes. All right. Sit tight. Hey, wake up! Wake up, everybody! It's a gorgeous day! Gorgeous day! Come here! 20th Century Fox presents The Story of Carla Moran. The most extraordinary case in the history of psychic research. Everything broke loose and went crazy, and everything was shaking. The bed was shaking, and the walls were shaking. Like like an earthquake. No, it wasn't like an earthquake. It was much stronger than any earthquake. Oh, wait a minute. I, I, honey, I don't really understand this. I, you were attacked? Or, or you weren't? It happened. I was raped. You were raped by whom? I don't know. There was no one there. A team of experts will investigate her life. Why does he attack you, Carla? <laughs> Not anyone else. Why should she go to such lengths to support this delusion? And they will find more than evidence. They will find the entity. Hey, we're back with 1982's The Entity. There is no escape from the entity. Something is after Carla Moran. It wants her soul. It wants her body. There's no stopping it. And there's nowhere she can run. The entity has come for Carla. She doesn't know what it is or why it has chosen her. But she is its victim. 
It torments her in the bedroom. It attacks her in her friend's home. It even seizes control of her car while she's behind the wheel and almost kills her. But the entity won't kill Carla because it has other things in mind for her. All right, well, that's the very, um, what's the right word? Uh, salicious? Is that a word? Is that the right word? It's like kind of dirty. Salicious sounds right. It's, yeah. It's a little bit dirty. I mean, so's the movie, though. This movie is a skeezy movie. <laughs> See, I don't know if skeezy is the right word. Right. Uh, skeezy seems like it has a kind of good humor to it, almost. Sleazy. I like sleazy better than skeezy. It's, uh... It's it, just ever so, like, kind of a grungy movie. Yeah. It's got, a, let's say it has a certain gaze to it. That's a good descriptor for the film itself. I, yeah. Yeah, I think so. So The Entity is a 1982 film starring Barbara Hershey as the lead character of Carla Moran and Ron Silver as Dr. Phil Snyderman. This movie was directed by Sidney J. Fury, and a couple of, of his directorial credits that I thought were very interesting, um, and one in particular was that he did the 1972 Billie Holiday story, Lady Sings the Blues, and that starred Diana Ross as Billie Holiday and also had Billy Dee Williams and Richard Pryor in it. Oh, gee, I wonder why that caught your eye. Could yeah. it be Billy Diana Dee Williams? Ross. Oh. <laughs> nice try. We all know it was Lando. <laughs> It may have been Lando. Um, <laughs> this may be a bit of a shocker after watching this movie. He also directed Ladybugs, the Rodney Dangerfield soccer movie, but also starring the late, the great Jonathan Brandis. Rest in peace. I've not seen that one. Poor Jonathan Brandis. Like I discovered it a couple a years ago story, that he died, yeah. and it's just, it's just yeah. so tragic. He was, uh, he was a good actor. He was a little bit before my time. I was all Leonardo DiCaprio personally. Yeah, right on, right on. Um, he is the co-creator and the director of three of the four Iron Eagle movies, which I think I saw the first one. But those are about the, um, they're like a Louis Gossett Jr. film series in the 80s. And it was about the real life attacks by the United States against Libya. And it was the Gulf of Sidra incident is what those were all kind of focused on. He did a film that stood out to me, which I have not seen, 1961's Dr. Blood's Coffin, which is just an awesome... So it just stood out to you based on that name. It did, of course. Of yeah. course. It's a horror movie. Yeah. I don't know anything else about it. He directed it. It's got a cool name. What I do know a lot about is Superman for The Quest for Peace, the 1987 Superman movie starring Christopher Reeve that tanked the Superman franchise until uh, Zack Snyder uh, brought it back to awkward life. Superman for The Quest for Peace, like we could should just do a whole other podcast about that movie. But anyway. What's the crime? Is the crime how bad it was? Yeah. Yeah. Aw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christopher Reeve went in thinking that they had a $30 million budget and they cut it to $3 million budget when they started filming. That's a big cut. And he like co-wrote the, the script. It was all about the United Nations and about uh, Superman abolishing all nuclear weapons by throwing them into the sun. Gene Hackman comes back as Lex Luthor. He's got John Cryer as his uh, cohort, his nephew, and they uh, create um, Nuclear Man from Superman's DNA. And then they fight. That actually sounds amazing. Can yeah, we, we have it? it. Yeah, we have all of them, but... Um, Maybe we should start with the worst one and then go backwards. Sounds like a plan. Yep. All right. So that's the director, Sidney J. Fury, uh, did, uh, did the entity. It was written by Frank DeFolita. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, longtime listener of the show. He wrote the novel and the screenplay. He also wrote the screenplay for Audrey Rose, and that is about uh, a stranger that attempts to convince a happily married couple that their daughter is actually his daughter reincarnated. That sounds 
bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually intrigued. Yeah, we might uh, we might check that out at some point. One of the cool things is that the score is done by Charles Bernstein, and he composed A Nightmare on Elm Street, Chelsea. You should sing it for everyone. Ba, 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 do, 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 do. I love it. I want that yeah. for my ringtone. All right, we'll uh, we'll we'll make that available. He also did the awesome slasher that you and I were recently talking about, April Fool's Day, which I think we shall watch this April first. Uh, he also did another uh, Wes Craven movie, Deadly Friend. Rounding out the cast, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Barbara Hershey is the lead of Carla Morgan, and um. If her name doesn't ring a bell, so she played Mary Magdalene in Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ in 1988. She's also in uh, the movie Beaches from the same year. Um, I guess kind of a more current movie. She's in Darren Aronofsky's Black Swamp. We have uh, Dr. Snyderman, played by Ron Silver. And really, for some reason, the only two roles that I think of when I think of Ron Silver are The Arrival, but specifically... That of Time Cop, the JCVD time travel story, Coaster and Mia Sarah. It's awesome. Did we see that? No. No. What's the other time travel one we saw with the cop that traveled in time? Mm, I don't know. Trancers. Trancers. Charlie Band's Trancers. Yes. Handed to us by Charles Band himself. It's true. I actually really enjoyed that movie. Yeah. No, it was pretty good. That was I think we should one. rename it Time Cop. <laughs> yeah. It might be a little bit of a better movie. Um, okay, so her friend Cindy um, and Cindy's husband, which I did lazily did not write down his name, but uh, she is played by Margaret Blythe, and she was in the original Italian job, but most importantly, she was in 1995's Hey, Charles Band Again, How Did This Happen? The Ginger Dead Man, starring the voice of Gary Busey. You keep threatening me with watching that movie, and yet I've still never seen it. All right, all right. We'll have to see it sometimes. We do have full moon streaming, so we have access to all of those movies. Uh, Here's a little interesting uh, fact. The boyfriend, Jerry, Carla's boyfriend, played by Alex Rocco, he is the father in The Lady in White, which we covered in a mini-sode on our November 6th mini-sode of last year. Yes, that was such a good movie. I loved hearing from people who said that they watched that movie after we talked about it. It was exciting, kind of spreading it because it, I loved it. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. I, I, that was a really nice surprise that so many people just uh, checked out The Lady in White um, from that episode. It's a great film. He's also in The Godfather and in, well, Return to Horror High. Because when I'm looking at these uh, actors' credits, I'm looking for the horror movies. I think that's what I used to think every September when I was in high school. Yes. Oh, man. You too? Oh, my high school's okay. <laughs> All right. Let's jump into taglines, Chelsea. Let's uh, Let's rank these puppies. The first one. Based on a true story that isn't over yet. Well, it gets bonus points for being very close to the name of the podcast, but I don't love it. All right. Second one. The ultimate story of supernatural terror. It's too generic. A story so shocking, so threatening, it will frighten you beyond all imagination. It's all right. Something evil is after Carla Moran, and it will stop at nothing to get her. It's also all right. These are very mediocre. There is no escape from something you cannot see. That's probably my favorite, but the bar is pretty low. Right on. I was guessing it might be. That's why I said it for the last one. But yeah, they're kind of weak. They are. Yeah. This movie was made on a nine million dollar budget. However, it was it did not make a ton of money. It made like uh thirteen point three million dollars. Um. So yeah, didn't do super well. 
Just a couple of interesting things um, that I picked out for this film is that Martin Scorsese has included it in his top 11, a good uh, weird number. Um, scariest horror films of all time. What number is it in the top 11? It's probably 11. Out? Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing about that factoid is it was included in a couple of the articles that I found about the, the real story. That was like the big thing with this movie. Well, number one is starring Barbara Hershey and number two is it's one of Martin Scorsese's top 11 scariest films of all time. Couldn't they just have editorialized that to say 10? I, I should have just said 10. Well, I feel like if it was in the top 10, they would have said top 10, <laughs> which is why I also think that it might be number 11. Yeah. He's like, you just missed it. You just missed it. This is interesting. Uh, Charles Bernstein's score for the film, uh, there are excerpts of it in Inglourious Bastards. So Quentin Tarantino kind of remixed, I think, elements of the score and included it in that film. Uh, I offer no comment on Quentin Tarantino factoids. (laughs) I was trying to move on to the next one really quickly, but uh, I had to take a breath there. so And I jumped in. Yep, 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 yep. The movie came out four years after the novel came out. The book was published in 1978. And we're talking about taglines in this one. Yeah, talk about like kind of dirty. The dust jacket blurb read, quote, Beyond physical reality, beyond ecstasy and pain, to a dark netherworld of psychosexual truth. I think that belongs on a Clive Barker cover. That does sound more like Clive Barker. Also, by the way, Martin Scorsese's top list, it was number four. Oh, right on. Cool. Hey, that's it's not actually bad. quite high. The only ones above it, it's The Haunting, Isle of the Dead, The Uninvited, and then number four is The Entity. Yeah, not bad. The Changeling is on this list also. Yeah, Changeling's great. I actually uh, really enjoyed that one. And actually, the most recent movies, this article is from 2013. The most recent movies on this list are from 1980, The Changeling and The Shining cool oh wait no the entity's 1982 i lied oh right on yep. so that's actually the most recent one gosh wow i guess modern horror must really suck maybe he hasn't seen any horror movies since then maybe he stopped at the entity <laughs> yep it's like, like this that's is that's as good as it gets yep he made one though he made shutter island that's a scary movie mm, the book was better <laughs> we were just having this discussion yep. the book was better the question is is the book better in this case has anyone out there read the book if so please let us know if it's better than the movie we are uh, gonna talk about our thoughts on this movie here in a second and um you know once we do dive in if you have not seen this movie we will spoil the hell out of it um i think kind of our unofficial slogan which we have not mentioned in a while is that spoilers abound with this show so just keep an eye to watch out yeah and i guess for those of you who made it through the first part through my first warning about this story being about rape the movie is even more graphic and uncomfortable it's very graphic and very uncomfortable so it definitely more warnings for you yeah I guess, Chelsea, the one thing I wanted to ask you about is after talking about the real life events, do you feel that things that they changed for the movie affected your experience or just like afterwards thoughts on the the movie so one thing that i thought was interesting looking at the difference between the true events and the movie is that in the 
real life events, at least as far as Dr. Taff knew, um, there were no medical doctors that she was going to. So I think a huge part of the movie is that she actually starts by going to um, a, a medical doctor, a psychologist who you know, clearly does not believe that there's anything supernatural going on. And it's almost a big relief to her when she finally does get in touch with the you know group of parapsychologists that truly believe her that she's going through this with an invisible entity and um you know and eventually it seems like the even the the medical doctor is kind of won over by his experiences of of eventually actually seeing her being attacked so in in the real story there is not that there is not a a medical doctor which i think in terms of creating an actual well-rounded story, it's it's kind of important because I think that all of us as laymen, as people who for the most part have not had those sorts of experiences, you know, the first thing you think is that it is it is a medical issue. I mean, that was both of our conclusions talking about the the real story. So to have that skeptic kind of thrown in as a character, I think that he, at least in the movie, is kind of representing all of us, you know, being a bit like, mm, are, you, are you sure it's not just a manifestation of your weird, lusty feelings towards your adult looking son? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I did think that that was interesting. I kind of going into watching the movie because we did see the movie before I, I did most of the research. Um, you know, I guess I kind of... It's weird watching the movie for the first time. I kind of maybe thought of it as almost a a metaphor for people who are living in domestic violence situations where it's like, you know, you go home and your home is supposed to be the safe space, but you know, at any point in time you can be attacked and violently raped. And you know, there are there are women who that's their everyday life when they're stuck in in these really horrible, horrifying situations. So I almost thought of it that way watching it the first time and it it almost made it a bit more more of a a horror movie you know because you are thinking of it as something that that is actually happening um so then I guess in that case almost the connection to the real story kind of takes away some of that impact because it's like oh no this is actually a story about someone who you know is is having paranormal experiences so you know I mean it's it's a hard movie to watch I'm sorry I'm kind of all over the place talking about it but it's it's not an easy movie to watch it is quite quite graphic you know I I feel like it's um you know more more contemporary movies showing sexual assault and rape I think you almost see less of it because you have a second body in the way versus just that focus in on on a woman who's experiencing it. I mean, to be honest, I never want to see this movie again. Not that it was a bad movie. I just personally never want to see it again. So what did you think, David? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, no, don't be sorry because, um, yeah, I, I did not enjoy this movie. Um, but I just but wanted it's to... it's not bad, right? No, no. Oh, it's not it's, bad. It's, it's not... really weird. It's like... It's a weird experience watching it. Yeah, it's just, it's not for me up until the point where she does contact the parapsychologist you could interchange the supernatural events for you know it could have been the boyfriend jerry was the one that was at home and 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 these things were happening to her i was convinced that the the doctors would think it was her son 
Which he does at a point, um, right? Because they're sort of, sort of... Well, no, he thinks it's like a psychosomatic like, manifestation. That's And that's kind of true to the real story, except in the movie she has three kids. Uh, it's like two daughters and the older son. And it's like, oh, so your three entities are like your two little daughters holding you down and then the son. But I thought they were going to think it was like actually physically happening and she was just disconnecting from it in her head, which is why she thought it was a ghost. Because, you know, she has bruises and bite marks on her. So when I think of this movie, two of the movies I was comparing this to directly the entire time was um, Poltergeist and The Legend of Hell House. And the interesting thing that uh, happens in The Legend of Hell House is where they they take the scientific approach, right? It's Roddy McDowell's character is the scientist who's bringing in this um, device in order to measure and then capture the um, ectoplasmic entity or whatever it is in order to... Um, study it but he's explaining the fact that there it's not a supernatural or spiritual event it's it's a pure scientific event and um around the halfway point of this film that's when it kind of starts to enter that realm but i feel like there's i don't know they're taking this weird heady 80s like approach to it where the film has already shown the assault in such a like you like you said the the like sort of gaze that it has that just feels um it feels kind of gross and not from a like trying to feel for the victim perspective but from a like the lens of the camera is going for this they i think they went out of their way in order to um we were talking about this but from what i understand they ended up developing some sort of warm air pressure system to sort of blow onto um barbara hershey so that it would appear that she was getting uh, even saying it's nasty i think but it was like, like a fake body where they were like some parts it was definitely a fake body <laughs> yeah it did it didn't look quite right and they said yeah stan winston's listed in the credits as having worked on the film so right that would be like my suspicion would be like there were scenes where it was definitely that but i guess the other scenes they were kind of blowing like a hose at her yeah yeah we should we should maybe give more detail for those of you who would rather skip this movie but want to know what we're talking about. There are multiple scenes where you see Barbara Hershey, her character Carla, um, naked and you see her breasts and you can see um, the appearance of like invisible hands, like fingers digging into them and that that's what they show. So it's it's interesting because it does feel like gazy, but it's not like it's sexy in any way. It's really grotesque. It is, yeah. Um, you know, while I guess simultaneously just inside my head I'm screaming why (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I think it it does bring up some very interesting I think points for you know if you're talking about it as a a metaphor for women being sexually assaulted I think there's there's one point where in kind of a, a dream she has where well it's it's like I guess it's reality maybe dreamy reality but she's she's assaulted by the ghost and orgasms and actually talks to the her psychologist about kind of the shame she feels about that so it's, I feel like it, it does work kind of well as as almost a, a metaphor for the people going through actual sexual assault except I guess you're supposed to believe it's an actual ghost because then it flips kind of stories into the the paranormal researchers and them like running experiments and trying to like capture it so it's like yeah like it the first half is about her and her psychological her her physical trauma yes and then trying to reconcile that with dr snyderman her her psychiatrist psychologist her her doctor uh played baron silver and then like you said like she finally feels some relief when she meets these parapsychologists who just happen to be at the it's like a bookstore and they're they're talking about 
Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like the right. real story. They're talking about yeah. ghosts and she just overhears them. I guess one thing that's kind of interesting to me about it is that, you know, there's no question to us as audience members that this is something that's actually happening. You know, they make it very clear that it's not all in her head, you know, from the get go, because you're really seeing these assaults. You see her you know, son gets zapped with electricity and thrown across the room and his arm is broken. And you see, you know, she's at her friend's house and all the windows get busted and, you know, her, her friends even see it. So they know there's some kind of external malevolent force happening. Um, yeah, the so, film is yeah. 100% on the side of that this is this is happening and that it's a reliable narrator. And it's like graphic. It's like her getting raped on the couch in the living room in front of all of her children. I'm serious when I say this is not an easy movie to watch. No. I don't know if it would have been a better or worse movie if it had maybe been a little bit more vague about whether or not it was really happening. It would have been a very different movie. It would have been a movie I was yeah, I'm interested in seeing that perspective. Yeah, like the poltergeist could have like stolen a child or something. Mm, I think I've already seen that movie. I did think the one aspect of the movie that I did like, and this was sort of the university behind the scenes stuff where it's like Dr. Snyderman going to, I guess, the dean of his department and sort of wanting him to go after the parapsychology team in order to, I guess, kind of, <laughs> I guess she's going to, he, he wants to pull Carla out of their observation of her because I, I guess like not only does he think it's like, not real, but it's it's like harmful for it's her dangerous. state of well, mind. Well, let's be honest. What they end up resorting to actually seems physically dangerous. We should go through briefly with the plot. So as we mentioned, it starts out with uh, quite a few really graphic, invisible rape scenes against Carla. She has three children in this movie, um, and one of them is is much older. I guess he's supposed to be like 17. Similar to Yeah, her... very very similar to the true story, just yeah. with there being three children instead of two. And but they're the, from the two was... fathers instead of four and you know she's having these experiences in the house she thinks the house is haunted um she has a friend who you know she goes over to the friend's house and the friend comes to her house kind of as a an extra protection but nothing is really stopping these attacks on her they're not just limited to the house the ghost attacks her while she's driving and he almost gets her into a, a fatal car accident by just hitting the gas and not letting her her um break the car and you know eventually she resorts to going to the medical doctor who is her her friend's doctor that you know she recommends and he's he's very skeptical of her experiences but then finally after convincing her friend that something is actually happening something paranormal is happening they go together to the paranormal bookstore and that's where they meet the the two kind of scientists from UCLA who are the equivalent of um you know Dr. Taff and his associate um Gaynor and they it's just like the real story. They bring a bunch of people to the house. They take the pictures. They see the lights. And um, finally, they come up with this insane plan to catch <laughs> the spirit, which is to shoot it with its liquid helium instead of liquid nitrogen. I don't know if that's to keep kids from trying to do this at home. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they essentially end up placing her in a, a fake house with a big machine overhead that's going to shoot down liquid helium on the entity when it appears so basically they're you know, taking the science e science light movie science route of just saying it's a real thing so you can freeze it yeah to which, create a giant set piece if it's a manifestation of energy i don't think that necessarily means it's a physical being that you can freeze and i don't think that that's what the real life parapsychologists involved would say but um 
that's what they're saying in this is that you could shoot it liquid helium and it will freeze so that kind of brings us to then the psychologist perhaps understandably freaking out oh yeah absolutely it's totally freaking out i mean it does provide a lot of cool uh smoke and like fog <laughs> effects to kind of envelop uh this house that they've built in the gymnasium yeah well i mean of course what happens is that this ghost who has already shown that or this energy this entity that has already shown that it has power over technology completely takes over and is chasing her around the fake house shooting compressed liquid helium at her to try to to freeze her to death what a slinker stinker of an entity yeah it's but it it makes for good film that was probably one of my favorite parts of the movie was this this last uh, bit. But what ends up happening is, I guess, the doctor, the psychologist doctor, not the parapsychologist doctor, don't get confused. Uh, he goes in and, and rescues her and pulls her out just in time for the liquid helium guns to explode and And it kind of develops the, the form, yeah, the, yes. the entity for a little bit. But then... You know, there's no distinct shape. There's no like tentacles or. I, well, I think it's kind of a, a torso. Yeah, but, like, it does. A it giant does. torso. Right. Yeah, it does. It looks like uh, from like floor to ceiling of this gymnasium-sized frozen like torso, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, and everyone sees it. So the psychologist sees it. Carla sees it. The parapsychologists see it. Their boss sees it. The dean of the school sees it. Although he's later like, I don't know what I saw is what i saw and they're like you asshole yeah they get real mad <laughs> the the entity breaks free and the ice kind of crumbles and then it's sort of the the end where you see carla she she goes back home and she's um her and the family are, are moving out but the the entity is not done yes uh, it, the, it's the entity's rude they make it seem like almost it's maybe connected to the house even though in the real story it's not and actually in their little end scrawl they end up saying it's not but yes the entity calls her a very rude name that i will not say on this podcast you know in the house and it's like weird sort of growly voice but she seems at least not phased by it it seems like maybe the most important thing to her is that people believe her and you know she saw physical proof and they saw physical proof and you know maybe Maybe for now that's enough, and she leaves. She leaves with her kids. She leaves, and then the uh, the end titles uh, state that the film you have just seen is a fictionalized account of a true incident which took place in Los Angeles, California, in October 1976. It is considered by psychic researchers to be one of the most extraordinary cases in the history of parapsychology. The real Carla Moran is today living in Texas with her children. The attacks, though decreased in both frequency and intensity, continue. The end. The end. Or is it? I firmly believe that it's not a bad movie. It's just not not a movie for me. I think I've said this pretty frequently on the podcast. I'm big on just enjoyable movies, movies with that rewatchability factor. It's a difficult movie to watch. It's disturbing. It's sad. <laughs> it's really rough. And there's something, too, that we failed to mention early on, but it's like in advance of any time of that the entity uh, assaults Carla. Charles Bernstein does the a thing with the music. score where it's the synthy percussion that is just really, really ominous. And it's kind of like Jaws, but not. That is 1982's The Entity. If you have seen the movie, please let us know what you think via our various forms of social media. Yes, yes, and thank you so much, you know, everybody who voted and participated. You know, we want to do more for you guys. You are our most exclusive, awesome audience that, you know, is giving us 
money to do this thing that we've been doing for fun. It's it's really incredible. We used your Patreon money this month to buy a DVD for a movie that I really wanted to watch in the coming month. Uh, spoiler alert, it's the Executioner song and we couldn't rent it anywhere. We had to buy it and it felt so good to just be like, you know, we can take this and reinvest it in, in the podcast. So we appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. We want to know what you want to hear from us. I think we heard on our Facebook that you guys want a outtakes track. <laughs> um, if you're sure, David's gonna gonna work on that, and hopefully, we'll get that in the uh, in the coming month uh, as a bonus to our bonus episodes. Yep. Um, but yeah, anything Q and A's. We can do Q and A's if that's something that that you guys would be interested. Um, just just let us know. Yeah, we we totally are willing to mix up the format of uh, the Patreon exclusive. Um, you know when we can and be creative with it and and a little bit different. I have an idea for an April Fools episode but i'm not sure if we're gonna do a regular bonus to the podcast or have that be our patreon exclusive content think about it over the next month but uh yes uh and echoing everything that chelsea said thank you so much for your amazing support we love the participation at some point we may open up to questions and kind of assemble those and and just read off uh what's the right word viewer mail (laughs) listener mail yeah yeah something like that yeah all right well thanks for sticking with us through uh this episode of the entity and the real life events that inspired said film we will chat with you all soon but uh until then remember death is but a door and time is but a window we'll be back Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.